Okay, Deuteronomy 20. Deuteronomy 20. Excuse me, 30. We're, we're behind, but we're not that far behind. Deuteronomy 30. And um, we stated when we talked about the curses of the covenant that the curses are often a reverse of the blessing or an absence of the blessing. We talked about that. We talked about how ancient Near Eastern cursed covenants end in uh, blessings and curses. We also talked about how the prophets in their pictures of judgment use the curses of the covenant. And in their pictures of restoration use the blessings of the covenant. But another point we made is that even the curses, as terrible as they were, were to wake people up to drive them to their senses and to help them see their need for God. And what we find here in Deuteronomy 30 verses 1 through 10 is that these curses of the covenant apparently are going to be effective at bringing the people to repentance. Deuteronomy 30 beginning with verse 1. So it shall be when all these things have come upon you the blessing and the curse which I have set before you. And you shall call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you. And you return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today to you and your sons then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you from all the people where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there He will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it. And He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. The Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecute you. And you shall again obey the Lord and observe His commandments, which I command you today. Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand, in all the offspring of your body, in all the offspring of your cattle, in the produce of your ground. For the Lord your God will again rejoice over you for good, just as He rejoiced over your fathers. If you obey the Lord your God to keep His commandments and His statutes which are written in the book of the law, if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. Now there are a couple of things that I want to emphasize as we begin looking at the text. First of all, you notice the phrase, with all your heart, all your heart, and all your soul. That phrase was used in verse 2, in verse 6, and in verse 10. With all your heart and with all your soul. It is used more frequently in the book of Deuteronomy 
than it is in any other book. It has been used before this chapter. Uh, I counted that precise phrase at least seven times before these three times in the text. Another key word, and, and this is difficult because it may be translated with different English words, but the word turn, the word return, the word turn, the word restore, the word return, these words are used quite frequently in this section, and it is all from the same Hebrew word. And this is in 30 verse 2, it's used three times in verse 3, it is used also in verse 8, 9, and 10. Now this is the Hebrew word. The thing that's interesting about that word, it has the sense of turn or return, but sometimes it is used of man turning to God. At other times it is used to describe God turning to man. Let's look at the passages first of all that speak of man turning to God. This is the way the phrase is used in verse 2. And you return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and with all your soul. So there it is used of man returning to God. 30 verse 2. Look at verse 8. In verse 8. Now in verse 8 the difficulty is this doesn't show up in the New American Standard Bible. But look at what your translation has. In verse 8 it says you shall again obey the Lord and observe all His commandments which I command you today. Did some of your translations have the word turn or return there? What did you have there, uh, was Ivan? Okay, the equivalent of the New American Standard in Spanish. Okay. Do any of your English translations, because they've got to have that. Josh, what did you have? Okay, you will return and obey. It's there in the Hebrew. I don't know why they couldn't put it there in the New American Standard. But uh, in verse 2, verse 8, and then you find in verse 10. But all of these are cases of men turning or returning to God. In the midst of their problems, they recognize their inability to look to any other source for help, and therefore they return to God. But in other places, it is used throughout this section, talking of God turning toward or restoring or blessing man. Now this is the way it is used each of the times that it is used in verse 3. In verse 3, it says, Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity. The literal translation is it restore the fortunes of. But it uses two forms of this word back to back. He will return and restore from you from captivity. And in verse 9, the Lord your God will prosper you 
abundantly in all the work of your hand, in the offspring of your body, the offspring of your cattle, and the Lord will return and rejoice over you. Again, the New American Standard doesn't have return, but it is there in the Hebrew text. So, this is my point, and I hope I've expressed it clearly. When we take a step toward God, God takes a hundred toward us. When we turn toward Him, He turns toward us. And this passage is calling the people when they experience the curses of the covenant, when they have received the judgment that God has described, to use that as a wake-up call to humble themselves and return from Him. And notice God speaks of His people being driven in all the nations. You see in verse 1, verse 1, I have set before you and you shall call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you. And in verse 3, he promises to restore them. In verse 4, if your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, then the Lord will gather them from there and he will bring you back. If you are captive and you are carried away in all nations and you are helplessly in slavery as you were when I found you in the land of Egypt, I will bring you back from there. Now, let me tell you that a thousand years later, a thousand years later in Israel's history, Nehemiah makes reference to this passage. In Nehemiah 1, Nehemiah 1 verses 8 and 9, listen to how Nehemiah invokes this promise. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful... I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote parts of heaven, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. Nehemiah, in Nehemiah 1.9, is invoking this in prayer. And he's using God's promises... He's using his promises to plead with him to do what he said, to keep his word, to keep his promises. And then, so in verse 4, back in Deuteronomy 30, if you're outcast or at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord will gather you, he'll bring you back. In verse 5, the Lord your God will bring you into the land which which your fathers possessed. And you shall possess it and you'll multiply it. But then in verse 6, the Bible says, The Lord the Lord will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. The Lord will circumcise your heart. Why that phrase? Well, first of all, When God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17, a sign of the covenant with Abraham was circumcision. And Abraham and his male descendants were to be circumcised on the eighth day. But that was a picture 
of a willingness to submit to God in all areas of life. And this idea of circumcision of the heart, it was mentioned in Deuteronomy 10, verse 16. It's mentioned here in 30, verse 6. It's mentioned in Jeremiah 4, verse 4. And Jeremiah 9, verses 25 and 26. When Paul mentions circumcised people's hearts being circumcised in Romans 2, verses 28 and 29, he is not developing a completely new concept. It's not as if that thought has never been there before. He is emphasizing something that the Old Testament emphasized as early as Moses, that they were to circumcise their heart before God. They were to humble their heart. They were to love God with all their heart. Remember, Stephen says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. And so the Lord your God will circumcise your heart so that you can love Him with all your heart and soul and mind. And if you do this, and if you return to the Lord, verse 7 says, the Lord will put on you all the, uh, the Lord will put on your enemies all the curses that He put on you. Look at that in verse 7. The Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecute you. That same thing was stated in Deuteronomy 7 and verse 15. Deuteronomy 7 verse 15. The Lord your God will remove you, remove from you all sickness. He will not put on you any of the harmful diseases on Egypt, which you have not known, but he will lay them on those who hate you. So you can be disobedient and you can be cursed. Or you can humble your hearts before God and return to him, submit to him, let him circumcise your heart, love him with all your heart. And those curses will come upon your persecutors. So the people are called to return to God in verse 8. And God, the text says in verse 9, God will return to you and he will rejoice over you. He'll rejoice over you. God rejoices that we are his people. In Psalm, excuse me, Isaiah 62, verse 5. Isaiah 62, verse 5. As a young man marries a virgin, and your sons will marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. You remember those early days of marriage? Those thrilling days of yesteryear, those early days of marriage when you were excited about who you were married to? Do you remember that? And those days, that is how God rejoices. It's a picture of how God rejoices over us. In Isaiah 65, in verse 19, God says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad for my people. So God rejoices 
over His people. God will will return to them. God will restore them. God will rejoice over them. this, This is a beautiful picture of a broken people who've experienced these curses coming back to Him. Returning to Him. Now, what are some things that I need to deal with there that I didn't? It's, it's an interesting thought. Both times the New American Standard uses again in verse 8 and verse 9, it could be translated rejoice. Oh, excuse me, return. <laughs> return. Thank you. Uh, but yes, that, that's interesting, Mike. I, I don't know. The New American Standard does not generally do that. But it does it in two verses back to back. Anything else? Okay, verses 11 through 14. Let's just read 11 through 20. But we're going to break it up in 11 through 14 and then in 15 through 20. For this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you. Nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will go up to heaven for us? To get it for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will cross the sea for us, to get it for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it. But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may observe it. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death, and adversity. And then I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to keep His commandments and His statutes and His judgments, that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey, but you are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you will surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you are entering the Jordan to enter it and to possess it. I call heaven and earth against you as witness to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death. The blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying His voice, by holding fast to Him. This is your life and the length of your days, and that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. Verse 11, what God is telling the people is not too difficult 
for them to grasp, to understand, not at all. And we sometimes look at this law that God gave the Israelites and and we think of it as complex, as difficult. God said it's not up in heaven that you have to attain some great height to get it. You You don't have to answer the question, who will go up to heaven and get it for us? Let's say it was in the highest point that man can reach that God revealed himself on Mount Everest. Would somebody be willing to go there to that great height and scale that great mountain in order to bring it back? But God didn't make it that difficult. And God didn't put his revelation so far beyond the sea that you have to cross the seas and the oceans in order to find it. God has spoken from heaven to the people and revealed it to them. Moses spoke to God face to face as a man speaks to his friend. It wasn't remote. It wasn't inaccessible. It wasn't something they couldn't grasp. It was, in verse 14, near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. You could quote it and apply it to your life and apply it to specific areas. When you said, what should we do in this event? Someone could quote the law. And you could do it. It wasn't so high up in heaven that no one could reach it. It wasn't so deep beyond the seas that no one could swim that far to get it. It's accessible to them. Now, that passage used in the New Testament. Do you remember? Romans where, Mike? Romans 10. Just look over there. Romans 10. Okay, let me begin in verse 5, Romans 10 verse 5. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. For the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven... Now you notice those words from Deuteronomy 30. Then he has in parentheses, that is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? This word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith, which we are preaching. And he goes on to say in verses 10 and 11, but if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a man, a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Now, Paul is emphasizing here that 
we can proclaim the gospel from the law. The law prepares and proclaims the gospel. He is talking in context about how Israel has rejected this message, but Gentiles have accepted it. I want you to look at what he said in verse 4. Romans 10, verse 4. Right before he starts this section, he says that, that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ, Romans 10, 4 says... Christ is the end of the law. Christ is the end of the law. Does that mean contextually that that he's the end in point of time, termination? Or does it mean he is the end in the sense that he is the purpose to which the whole law pointed? Or does it mean both? I think this is one of those passages that show us that Christ is the interpretive, and I hope I spelled that right, interpretive key to the Old Testament. He is the interpretive key to the Old Testament. And ultimately, all of its words and its events find significance in relation to him. He takes Paul's statement about the law in Deuteronomy 30 and applies it to Jesus as having its fulfillment in him. Moses said that law was not placed up in heaven so that none of you could reach it or attain it. And Paul says, none of you have needed to climb up into heaven to bring Christ down. God has sent him down from heaven. The one who was in heaven in need of nothing has come to this world of sin and sorrow and suffering to rescue us from sin. None of us need to go up into the heaven to bring Christ down. We did not need to descend into the abyss. I notice, and you notice, verse 7 is different than what Deuteronomy 30 verse 13 said. Deuteronomy 13 verse, Deuteronomy 30 verse 13 talked about the sea. This talks about the abyss. But none of us needed to descend into the abyss to bring Christ up from the dead. God has sent him to our earth. God has given him in the death and burial resurrection of Jesus. God has overcome him. We don't need to accomplish this great thing. We confess him with our mouths. We believe in our heart and we are willing to follow him. God has done the difficult work in the incarnation and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And just as the law was made attainable, in this sense, Deuteronomy 30 and the law revealed Christ who would be the ultimate fulfillment of the law. Now you all understand what I just said because I am not sure I understand it all. And I'm not understand, I'm not it is very difficult to say clearly 
is very difficult to say. What questions do you have? And by the way, some other, there are other passages besides Romans 10 4 that show this. But like you, you said, Mike, just the very fact that he's described as the Word. And he's the Word of God. But remember where Jesus, where Jesus says, O foolish and slow of heart to believe in all that's written in the prophets. Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He explained to them the things concerning Himself in all of Scripture. And that's saying this idea that He is the ultimate fulfillment of all of Scripture. And Luke 24, verse 44 also makes that point. Remember how Paul wrote... In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, about how when one reads the law, a veil is over the heart. But when you turn to Christ, the veil is taken away. I think it's the same kind of idea. It's the idea is the veil remains open. It's not that something's wrong with the Old Testament. But it's only when you see the Old Testament as fulfilled in Jesus that you see the full meaning of it. Before, it's like there is a veil over your face that you can't see through and you can't, and you're asking like the Ethiopian eunuch is asking, who does the prophet speak of? Of himself or someone else? But when you see through Jesus, see it through the lens of Christ, you see how this is a fulfillment of all of Scripture. But this, this is... There's been a lot written about how Romans 10 quotes from uh, Deuteronomy 30. And no, we just scratched the surface there. But I do think um, that God is showing through Moses that this law is accessible and that salvation through Christ has been made accessible. Right? I don't know if I understood the last sentence, but I do I understand you as a whole before then. I do understand and agree that yet yeah, the whole Old Testament was to lead us to accept him, to prepare. Did most of them recognize who he was in life? No. But after that, we go back and we look at that. I think this is the way the disciples were as they were with him in that upper room and he's explaining these things to them in Luke 24, 44. That as he's explaining them to them, then all of it, they say, aha, you know, it all fits together. And is there anything else you want to say to that? Or? Yeah. What happens there? Yeah. 
Yes. Yes. Any other? Yes. I. Yes, Hebrews 10, 1, I think it is, uses that expression in Hebrews. It's also used in Colossians 2 about all the feast days and things in verses 16 to 17. But you're right. All of Hebrews really shows us how that is a shadow of, of Jesus. So um, that was... Go ahead. I think we see Stephen in his discourse before they stoned him going back to the Old Testament and just laying it out to them because they still did not get it. They still didn't understand it. And that's, I think, why he went back there, to, to bring them through this whole point and try to, to show them that you had the law, you actually had Christ, even though you didn't know it back then, but yeah. now Christ has been revealed and you still did it. Yes, absolutely. Yes, you've always rejected the livers that God sent is one of the key points of Stephen's sermon in Acts 7. And, um, but... Very good, and very good. And, and if you've got other questions privately about that, ask me. Because th- that's, that's a passage I still need to work on some to get to the bottom of. But in verses 15 through, through 20, he makes a final choice. He gives the people a final alternative. He, he gives them a final choice. He says, I am setting before you life and prosperity, death and adversity. He has laid out for them the curses if they are disobedient. If you are disobedient, you're going to be cursed. And these are the curses that will come on you. He has laid out the blessings for obedience. And so here he is calling them to a decision. He is summing this up. I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. And it's going to be an appeal to them to choose life. The the preacher, Moses, has built up uh, this statement to come to this conclusion. And, uh, but he calls them in verse 16 to love the, Lord, the Lord, love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to keep His commandments and His judgments, uh, that you may live and multiply, the Lord may bless you. But in verse, in verse 17, if your heart turns away and you will not obey, but you are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them. Now, keep your finger there in verse 17 just a moment. I want to say a couple of things. Notice over and over, the writer in, Moses emphasizes that it is going to be idolatry that will lead them to captivity. It is the sin of the Old Testament. Don't worship any other God. Don't serve any other God. You are my people. But if you are drawn after other gods and serve them, it will be your destruction. Idolatry is the sin of the Old Testament. Now... Go back to verse 1. 
In verse 1, the Bible talked about the Lord gathering the people or restoring the people from all the lands where he banished them. That word translated banished is referring to what God would do in scattering them among all nations. Scattering them among all peoples. That word that is used in 30 verse 1 to describe what God will do for the people among the nations, how he will banish them, it is the same word used in verse 17 to talk about the nations being drawn away and serving other gods. Because they serve other gods. Because they are drawn away from him, God will draw them away from the land. Because they have banished God. and worship other gods God will banish them from the land But, but idolatry is the sin of the Old Testament in verse 18 I declare to you today that you shall surely perish you shall not prolong your days when you're entering the Jordan to crossing the Jordan to enter it and to possess it I call heaven and earth to witness against you that I have set before you life and death Blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. Moses has preached to them, he has warned them, he has led them 40 years, and he is making an appeal to them. Choose life. Choose life. Choose the way of blessing. The Bible often as circumstances where we have to make one of two decisions. And it appeals to us to make the right one. Jeremiah faced that situation in Jeremiah 21, verses 8 through 10, where the people could go out and surrender to the Babylonians and live, or they can stay in the city and die. And he appealed to them to do the right thing. And Jesus does that. Enter the straight gate. For broad is the the gate and wide is the way that leads to destruction. And many are those that go in thereat. But straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life. And few there are who find it. Jesus said there are two roads ultimately. And you must choose to follow. You must enter the narrow gate and follow the straight road. And here, Deuteronomy 30 I call heaven and earth. They are witnesses of all that I have done. And I call them to witness this. Choose to do the right thing. Now you remember that at the end of Joshua's life, Joshua is going to make a similar appeal. He says in Joshua 24 verse 15, If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Whether the gods your fathers served who were beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's Joshua 24 in verse 15. So Joshua 24, 15, Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. Moses and Joshua at the end of their career appealed to the people to choose him. Now this all implies... That we have a choice. That we can choose to follow him. Or we can choose to disobey. But he states in verse 20. 
that they're to follow Him by loving God, by obeying His voice, by holding fast to Him. For this is your life and the length of your days that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. This is your life. Now I think in context, that statement, this is your life, refers specifically to the fact that if you live, if you keep these commandments, you will live a long time and your people will live a long time. But it's true in a, in a greater sense too. Loving God and doing what God stated Trying to please Him is the essence of life. That's what life is all about. If there is a God, and I'm not stating that doubtfully, but just think of the logical consequences. If there is a God who made us, a God who created us and who created our world. And that only makes sense. Because there's nothing in the universe that's responsible for its own existence. I may have never seen you made this chair or this table, but I know it didn't make it so. Because nothing in the universe is responsible for its own existence. But the universe itself just happened? Uh-uh. It's only logical that God exists. But if He just does exist, are we prepared to accept the implications of that? That means He dominates our world. He dominates our lives. And the most important thing in our lives is to be right with the One who made us. Doesn't it only make sense that the God who made us will one day call us to account? And what more is there to life than loving Him, than doing His will, and keeping His commandments? What is there more than that, more important than that? Now, we've got about five minutes. And I rebuked Joshua today because I think he, he rang the bell one minute early. We could be finished now if he had given me that minute, okay? But you see we're not going to finish Deuteronomy 31 to 34. This is what we're going to try to do. First of all, if you've got any questions in just a second, you can ask about what we've covered in this morning. If you don't have any, we'll start reading Deuteronomy 31, a few verses. But we want to have four or five classes at our house um, finishing this book up. I hate to start something and not finish it. And um, we're going to try to have the first one. And, and, and this, this is going to be subject to change if there's a much better night. Okay? But... Um, Lord willing, next Friday night is what we'll just say. We'll try to have a class and we'll try to cover Deuteronomy 31 at the house. You're invited. 
if you have been a part of this class and your your mate, husband or wife, has had the misfortune of being in another class, or they're teaching a class this semester, then you can still bring them. We will not kick them out. Uh, so that's how gracious we'll be. Uh, but we're going to let you all come uh, first, and we're not going to give you anything to eat. Um, we'll see how many we're dealing with after the first. <laughs> uh, but so you're all going to be welcome next Friday, seven o'clock at our house. If you don't know where we live, um, well, I could give you the address. I can't give you the direction. It's very close to here. But any questions there about Deuteronomy 30, anything we've gone over through Deuteronomy, anything that you have questions about? What would be your overall impressions of the book? What would be some things that would strike you? Josh, this, you know, you're in the line of sight here. What would be something that would strike you? Anything? I know that is a broad question because there's more than you can sum up at the moment. Okay, Vicki okay. has a great idea to talk to. constantly calls us to that, doesn't it? And it did tonight, as we saw. And, and Jesus, since he states that's the first and greatest commandment, there can't be a lot more important than that. Bob, was it? Yes. He calls them to decide which path they will go and which option they will take. Will you follow me or will you not? But he lays out what's going to happen. He lays out what's going to happen if you follow me. He lays out what's going to happen if you don't. And as you studied, and I know some of this was when I was away last Wednesday night, when you studied Deuteronomy 28 and the blessings and curses, to some degree the rest of the Old Testament is a fulfillment of those passages, the blessings and curses. But this is a question I would ask. Did God keep his promises in those things that as Bob mentioned? Did he keep his promises and do what he said as far as blessings and curses? Yes. What does that lead us to think today? A world may scoff at the fact that Jesus will return. That he will call us, he will raise the dead and call us to stand before him in judgment. A world may scoff at those facts. But Jesus has said it. And throughout the Bible, the Bible was a pretty good record of being accurate as far as God's promises. God's got a pretty good record as a promise-keeping God. And so we need to pay attention and listen. But thank you very much for being a part of it. And God bless.